Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome. My name is Ian Vasquez. I'm Vice President for International Studies at the Kiel Institute. And today we will be discussing Mustafa Akil's new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. The book is about the crisis in Islam. It is about how Islam's theological turn many centuries ago toward a more insular worldview has created an ethical gap between rigid interpretations of Islam and the modern world. How compatible is Islam with modernity, with universal values like basic human rights, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, even freedom of speech? These are contested questions within the Muslim world, and Mustafa Akil offers his own answer. Modern values are indeed uh, consistent with the best Islamic traditions, uh, <clears throat> and as the history of Islam itself ha has shown, especially uh, during its golden age, uh, when the Islamic world was the most open and the most tolerant in the world, and consequently uh, the most advanced civilization in the world. Mustafa is a devout Muslim, so he guides his readers through Islamic theology and all of its twists and turns to explain how Islam got to where it is and why it needs reform. He draws also from economic and political history to show why Islam began embracing coercive power. The reform that uh, Mustafa Akil advocates has to come from Muslims themselves, so the book is largely uh, addressed to them. But it is also addressed to the non-Muslim world, and especially to Westerners who misunderstand Islam, including those uh, who uh, those uh, uh, who are apologists who claim there is nothing wrong with Islam, and Islamophobes who often forget their own religious history of bloodshed, intolerance, and indeed reform. Mustafa has written a very important book that I expect will become a reference work for many years to come. It is not a book about public policy, but it is consequential in, in that regard too, because the way that Islam is interpreted in and outside of the Muslim world affects the whole range of public policies, from energy policy and immigration, to foreign policy and security, to a whole range of civil liberties, including free speech, and so on. Before uh, I introduce Mustafa Akil, I want to remind our viewers our audience, that they can submit questions uh, via our webpage and social media platforms of Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube using the hashtag Cato Books. Mustafa Akyol is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute, where he focuses on Islam and modernity. He writes a regular column for the New York Times. He is the author of several books in English, including Islam Without Extremes, and uh, the author of six books in Turkish. He has been a visiting fellow at Wellesley College. He has been a columnist for about a decade for two Turkish newspapers, and he joined the Cato Institute uh, several years ago after it became difficult and indeed impossible and unsafe for him to do his work in Turkey. Also, Mustafa is a very nice guy. Welcome, Mustafa. Thank you so much, Ian. Uh, that's very kind of you, and that's a very generous introduction. Uh, it's a really pleasure to do this forum with you. And thanks to dear Jack, you know, who will speak after me, uh, who kindly joined this morning. 
I'm also grateful to him for writing a very powerful endorsement for my book, uh, which you know readers can see on the cover. Then greetings to everybody who's watching us today and Ramadan Mubarak, or may your Ramadan be blessed. I'm saying that because this is the first day of the holy month of Ramadan this year, uh, which means hundreds of millions of Muslims around the world will be fasting in the next 30 days. Now, that is not a small matter. It means that from sunrise to sunset, uh, people will not eat or drink anything. So it's hard. But there's a lot of beauty uh, in Ramadan and, and fasting. Uh, I grew up with that culture in Turkey. Uh, you anxiously wait for the iftar dinner, the fast-breaking dinner. The whole family gathers. Mosques are full, but they're entertainment for kids. So there's a lot of spiritual and communal, communal beauty in Ramadan, which I'm sure we will see around the world, the Muslim world, uh, in the next 30 days. But I'm afraid we might see some ugliness as well. Uh, and what I have in mind there is what I call Ramadan policing, uh, which one can see in various Arab countries, Saudi Arabia often being the most rigid, as well as Iran, Pakistan, or Malaysia. In these countries, if you show up during the day in Ramadan with drinking a glass of water or having a sandwich, the police will come after you. They might fine you. They may even give you a prison sentence. They seem to believe that fasting is not just an act of individual worship to please God, but also an act of collective discipline to please the state. And that is just a small and mild manifestation of the main problem that I'm addressing in my book, Reopening Muslim Minds, the problem of religious illiberalism in the contemporary Muslim world. Not the whole Muslim world, for sure, I mean, which is a diverse place. I mean, uh, it should not be seen as a monolith. Uh, I, I demonstrated, I think, that in the uh, Freedom in the Muslim World report I prepared for the Cato Institute a few months ago, uh, there I show that some Muslim-majority countries like Bosnia, Herzegovina, or Albania are actually quite free. But in North Africa, Middle East, and Southeast Asia, there are several Muslim-majority countries where, which have a huge problem with uh, religious illiberalism. For example, in about a two dozen Muslim-majority countries today, there are blasphemy laws, which means if someone says something offensive against the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, or other tenets of Islam, even just illegitly, he or she may end up in prison for years. Sometimes he or she can be targeted by vigilante mobs, which unfortunately happens quite often in Pakistan. In about a dozen Muslim-majority countries are apostasy laws, which means if a Muslim publicly gives up his faith to become a Christian or an atheist or some other conviction, he or she may be jailed and even given the death penalty. This apostasy verdict, by the way, works in an other way, uh, as we have seen in the past several decades in some Muslim countries, Islamic regimes, uh, so-called. Muslim scholars or intellectuals who just have reformist views about Islam can be condemned as apostates, although they are believers. Uh, who condemns them? Sometimes religious orthodoxy, some militant groups, so they can be targeted, executed, or most of the time they can be forced to leave their country. And we know that when you silence one person, it's a tragedy for that person, but also for the society too, because you actually block the society for rethinking new on important issues. 
in these Muslim majority countries, such as Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, there are discriminatory laws against women or religious minorities. There are also doctrines, which, especially popular in the Gulf, <laughs> which preach obedience to the ruler as a religious duty, no matter how tyrannical the ruler may be, as long as he upholds the religious orthodoxy. Now, there's a thread that is connecting all these things because there's a deeper problem, because they come from certain verdicts in classical Islamic jurisprudence. That is the interpretation of the Sharia, which is Islamic legal tradition. Uh, that's why to be able to speak of a compatibility of Islam and human rights today, uh, I believe we need to address these issues. And I'm convinced that we need a reform, a major reform in Islamic law. And what kind of reform, what's the goal? I define it in a simple one definition. I say, I call it, giving up course of power in the name of the faith. Not that Muslims should not be practicing. It just, it, it means that people, Muslims should just not coerce other people to be practicing or to be Muslims or to be from their own sect and uh, their own conviction. Let me remind that this has nothing to do with the Protestant Reformation that some people have seen as a historical analogy. Uh, if there is an analogy in history, that is the enlightenment as epitomized like by John Locke, uh, who offered the reinterpretation of Christianity to save it from its own centuries-old marriage with coercive power of the state. Uh, therefore, my book is making a call for and an argument for an Islamic enlightenment, not an enlightenment that goes against religion, but reinterprets religion. So it is based on freedom and not coercion. Now, how does it look like? Uh, first of all, I have chapters in the book about the burning issues that I just mentioned. One chapter is about the matter of religious policing, which is called hispa, uh, with the Arabic term, and the people who do it are called the muhtasib. Uh, there are also two separate chapters about blasphemy and apostasy. In those chapters, I argue that, reasonably speaking, coercion is absurd in these matters because the threat of force does not make people really pious, faithful, or respectful to Islam. Scripturally speaking, these coercive acts also have no basis in the Quran, the only undisputed source of Islam. They have some bases in the post-Quranic sources, such as the Hadith and Sirah, which is the reported, and I should say sometimes alleged, sayings and the uh, reported acts of the Prophet Muhammad. But a careful, really, but a careful reading there in context, even there offers a big room for reinterpretation. As scholars, some scholars have already pointed out. And I refer to, refer to their works either, either in the classical era scholars or in the modern era. But these burning issues, religious policing, blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, they are just the tips of the iceberg. There is a deeper story, which I define in the book as the statization of Islam. This is a historical reality, it happened. And it happened right at the birth of Islam. Unlike in Christianity, where it happened much later, at least three centuries after the birth of Christianity, when Rome adopted it as the official uh, state religion. But what I'm arguing in the book is that this 
early marriage of Islam and state was not a divinely ordained destiny, but a historical contingency. What does this mean? Uh, well, I would refer to my chapter back to Mecca, but uh, the, I'll try to explain the argument there in a nutshell. Islam was born in 7th century uh, Mecca when Prophet Muhammad, a former merchant, began preaching monotheism in a polytheist city. His small followers, the first Muslims, the Mu'minun, uh, formed a small community of believers. They were a civil community. They were not a state. They were oppressed by the establishment in the city, the polytheist establishment. In return, what did they ask for? They asked for the right to be able to live their faith, that is monotheism, and also preach their faith and to speak out against polytheism, against idolatry. They asked for, in other words, as I put in my book, what we today call freedom of religion and freedom of speech. There are verses in the Quran that makes this quite clear. Uh, in one of them, Prophet Muhammad is commanded to say to the polytheists of Mecca, to you, your religion, and to me, mine. Which is in chapter Surah 109 and verse 6. Another Quranic verse speaks to the Prophet Muhammad himself and tells him, O Prophet, keep on preaching. You are only a preacher. You're not a compeller over them. That is uh, Surah 88, verses 21 and 22. Now, in my book, I ask a question that is not much asked in the Islamic tradition. What would have happened if the Meccans accepted the Quranic call for freedom of religion or freedom of speech? What they just stopped oppressing the Muslims and let them do practice and preach their religion? Then I argue we would have a very different history of Islam. What happened in actual history was that Meccan polytheists kept persecuting the Muslims even came close to murdering the prophet. That's why the, the prophet and other Muslims fled uh, from Mecca to Medina, where they soon established an army, began collecting taxes within the Muslim community, and brought in some legislation. It was not a state in the modern sense, but it was an armed polity. Uh, and this polity had several battles with the pagans of Mecca, the polities of Mecca and their allies, for survival of the Muslim community and faith, as I argue there, and as some scholars have argued. And there are chapters, there are some sections in the Quran about these battles, about fighting the unbelievers, fighting the infidels, and some, some passages. Now, one problem is that later Islamic tradition perceived this Medina phase as the final and definitive full form of Islam not as a historical contingency, but a divinely mandated blueprint. And they also used it as a blueprint to establish an empire of Islam, which was quite normal at the time. I mean, everybody was doing that. The Byzantines were doing the same thing. Uh, but this became a religious view, not just a historical interpretation. Many jurists in the classical era, in the Sunni tradition, went as far as saying that the verses from the Meccan period which called for toleration and non-coercion, the verses that I just quoted, were abrogated. They were rendered ineffective. They were abrogated by what they called the verses of the sword, the worst that actually called for war against the unbelievers, the infidels and 
uh, and who are they is a different discussion in Islam, but you know, not, not get, gonna get into there here. Uh, soon blasphemy and apostasy laws appeared in Islamic tradition too, which again, didn't have a basis in the Quran, which by the way, was very similar, similar to the Sassanid and Byzantine laws that existed in that time and milieu. Now, one thing I do in the book is to call on fellow Muslims to rethink and reconsider how this marriage with the state influence our religion. Many Muslims think today, especially Islamists, that when religion and state come together, that's good for religion because the state upholds religion. You make people fast by the power of the state. Well, you create hypocrisy rather than piety, which is an, I think, important point I highlight in my book very often. But what they also see that when you bring the state and religion together, the state manipulates religion for its own ends. In my book, I show how that happened in early Islam when despotic states such as the Umayyad Empire in, introduced and supported the very doctrine of abrogation that I mentioned because they needed an aggressive interpretation of jihad for imperial conquest. They also introduced theological doctrines such as the doctrine of predestination because they realized that if people think in fatalistic terms, they become more obedient to political authority. Uh, which means theological doctrines must be a big part of this discussion of an Islamic enlightenment. And that's why actually a big portion of my book is about revisiting some theological doctrines and some theological disputes in early Islam. Uh, disputes such as whether the Quran is created or uncreated, which influences our ability to see the Quran as contextual or more absolute and literalist. Uh, in a literalist way. Another theological dispute, which is very central to my book, uh, which actually begins with that discussion, is what I call Islam's eutrophy dilemma. It comes from Socrates. You know, people people familiar with philosophy would be familiar with that. Uh, it was a dispute among Muslim theologians about whether the divine commandments, the Sharia, indicates ethical values or constitutes them. According to the first view, there were ethical values discernible by human reason and conscience, known in Christian th uh, history or tradition as natural law. This could help us reinterpret divine commandments and understand them and maybe reinterpret them if the context changes. According to the second view, divine commandments themselves were the only source of right and wrong, the only source of ethical value. And in the book, I show a wrong turn was taken there, as I see it, in, in Sunni Islam centuries ago, making divine commandment theory as the dominant religious outlook. Uh, but it was a turn that was not mandated by religion itself. It was, not, it was not a turn that was supported by the Quran. So it's a theological turn that we can revisit and overturn. Now, if you got into all the details of these topics, we would need many hours, uh, if not days. So I'll just stop here and, you know, just uh, recommend uh, checking my book uh, to our audience. Finally, I just want to thank all the great Islamic scholars whose works I quoted in my book. I've relied on the uh, really academic scholarly works of a lot of experts on this, just putting them in one big accessible argument and volume. Some of them encourage me with their endorsements, such as Khalid Abu Fadl, Asma Barlas, Asma of Saruddin. I'm very thankful to them. I'm also deeply thankful and grateful to some of the scholars I quoted in my book in the classical era or today who 
made some Im important arguments for reopening Muslim minds, as I would call it, but they paid the price, sometimes by being excommunicated, threatened or canceled, you know, it's called today, which shows that, yes, we have a problem to solve here. A problem that, in my view, as a Muslim, hides the beauties, the covers the beauties of my faith with a zealotry that uh, comes from actually a despotic uh, interpretation of the faith, which we can revisit and change. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mustafa. That was a good uh, summary. Uh, I want to remind our audience that if they want to submit questions, that they can do so through our webpage, through our social media accounts at Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube using the hashtag Cato Books. And now it's uh, my pleasure and honor to introduce Dr. Jack Miles, who is a real authority on religion, politics, and culture. He is a distinguished professor emeritus of English and religious studies at the University of California at Irvine, and a senior fellow for religion and international affairs at the Pacific Council on International Policy. His book, God, a Biography, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1996. He is also the author of several other books, including God in the Quran. He served as editor for the Los Angeles Times Book Review, and his writings have appeared widely in such places as the Atlantic, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and so on. Uh, I don't know uh, Dr. Miles as well as I know uh, Mustafa Akio, but uh, Mustafa tells me that he's also a nice guy. Welcome to the forum. Thank you, Ian. It's a it's a pleasure uh, to be here. I want to thank you and the and the Cato Institute uh, for for your support of uh, this event, uh, this book, and uh, and this author, and all the subjects that uh, that hover around it, which are are never have never been more important than they are today. I thought I might uh, begin by, by telling how uh, Mustafa and I came together for the first time. His book, Islam Without Extremes, was brought to my attention when I was directing the Religious Studies program at the University of California, Irvine. I thought it was a terrific title. I got a copy of the book. I, it lived up to its, its title. I invited him to, to speak uh, for us. And he began his remarks by describing himself as a newcomer in the United States and discovering with delight the pancake. He had pancakes with, with uh, butter and syrup at, uh, at McDonald's. And he just loved the taste of, of this, this treat. But he thought that if you wanted a pancake in America, you had to find the McDonald's. He didn't realize that even people like Jack Miles sometimes cook pancakes right, right in their own homes. Well, he offered this to us as uh, an, an example of the mistakes that uh, someone from one country can make going to another country, and then drew an analogy to uh, the mistakes that can be made as someone with a background in one religion or uh, goes to consider uh, another religion. It was a very disarming and appealing uh, way to begin, and he did indeed come across at that moment as a very nice guy. But this nice guy has a mind like a steel trap, and uh, this, this new book, more like his previous books, but to a, a newly intense degree, in my opinion, 
is very, very closely reasoned. All its parts fit together. There is no part that does not contribute uh, to the other parts. And the, the case he makes is indeed made uh, by a Muslim for other Muslims when he uses the pronoun we, which he does even in chapter titles, such as how we lost science. He's talking as a Muslim to his brother uh, Muslims. Now you've heard the saying, the past is a foreign country. And it's true, but the, and, and going to the past uh, as a tourist can be a delight. It can also be a profound uh, learning experience, most especially if the past you're visiting is your own past. When you hear stories, not just about your mother and father, but about your grandparents, your great grandparents. I recently heard that it was on the farm of my great, great grandparents in County Monaghan, Ireland, that the potato blight, which, which uh, cost about the third, uh, lost, cost Ireland about one third of its population in the mid 19th century, that it was on their farm that this blight was uh, first discovered. When you begin hearing stories like this from your own deep past, your attention is absolutely riveted. And that is, is what this book, I think, has the potential uh, to, to uh, deliver to uh, the Muslims of the world, but in the first instance, to the English-speaking Muslim community of the United States, which I consider a pivotal uh, community because Muslims here uh, come from all over the world. And so the potential for, uh, you might say, chauvinism, the domination of Muslims of various traditions within Islam by some one tradition which happens to control the religious police in one particular country is, is really impossible here, not just because of the, the neutrality of the American state, but also because of the character of the Muslim uh, population here. So it is possible that, that the, uh, the educated um, Muslim population of the United States led by scholars who can also write with the cogency and, and charm of, uh, of journalists like Mustafa uh, can really produce something in the long run that will be of, of world importance. Uh, that is to say, it will be of importance to world Islam, but because Islam, the Muslim population, the Ummah, is so big that the world cannot solve any of its problems unless the Muslims come along and even assume leadership roles appropriate to their, their size and weight, uh, then the, those world problems will not be solved uh, at all. I... Uh, I had initially thought that uh, in the remainder of my remarks, I would um, join uh, the very beginning of this book uh, to the end. I, I, I said just a moment ago that all of its parts are knit very, very beautifully together. Well, the, the latter three, three of the latest uh, chapters in, in the book all begin with the word Freedom. Freedom matters one, Hizbah, which, uh, and freedom matters two, apostasy, 
and Freedom Matters 3, uh, Blasphemy. Uh, but, um, and I wanted to, to link these uh, three chapters beginning with Huria, the Huria, the Arabic word for, for freedom, to a story about religious policing that Muhammad tells at the, uh, that, that Mustafa uh, tells at the beginning of his book. But, but since he's said so much of that uh, already, uh, I will save the telling of the story that opens this book, perhaps for the very beginning of the Q&A uh, period. Uh, and instead of just recapitulating what he was doing, I'd like to just dive into the book and, and, and uh, quote something and um, see if Mostafa might like to comment on it. Uh, the question of human rights, of course, begins with the question of, of humanity and of human nature. Uh, are there natural rights, that is, rights that accrue to us simply because we are human, before we have citizenship in any country, before we, we have uh, a declaration of, of faith in God or allegiance to any uh, particular faith? Or do rights uh, come from some other source that really has uh, no necessary connection with our common human nature uh, at all? Let me quote now a, a passage from page 60 in the chapter uh, entitled How We, How We Lost Universalism. I quote, Contemporary Muslim thinker Abdulaziz Sachedina offers some helpful insights about the problem here. In line with the Ash'ari theological voluntarism, he explains, most Sunni scholars denied the innate moral worth of humanity. Consequently, these scholars rejected a natural system of ethics, seeing it as alien and un-Islamic. This also meant that Islam could not participate in a universal moral order. It could only aspire to build its own. That is why after initial centuries of cosmopolitanism and creativity, Muslim thought increasingly became insular and self-referential. Hence, Islamic civilization lost the very exceptional absorptive quality that made it great in the first place. What emerged rather was a pervasive lack of curiosity about the rest of the world, which impeded progress in the late uh, Islamic uh, civilization. Um, I have another passage that I would like, uh, perhaps time permitting, to invite Mustafa to comment on. But Mustafa, would you care to uh, talk about this passage and also about this, this, the use of the term fitra, fitra, in the past of Islam and in the present? Yes, uh, sure. Um, thank you so much, Jack, for your kind words. And I'm, uh, again, honored to hear your thoughts about my work. And, and, uh, and good to remember the how we met with the pancake story in UCLA. Uh, thanks for uh, uh, reminding that as well. The passage you just quoted uh, is in the chapter of my book titled How We Lost Universalism. And 
and this is again on these issues there are different scholarly views some scholars will say that actually didn't happen some will say yeah yes happened so ultimately i choose sides in some of these big discussions that are going on but what i argue there is that the early islamic civilization was uh, magnificent everybody i mean most people know that and most muslims yearn for that a thousand years ago Muslims were the most enlightened civilization. We had more tolerance. We had more science. We were the inventors of algebra and algorithm, which went into the West and became, you know, uh, took Western uh, uh, words for it. Uh, but that's gone. And why did that happen? And for some people, I mean, for some, I think one standard answer is that because we were great, because we were pious, and when we turned sinful, God punished us. I I argue that no, we the Islamic civilization was great and very magnificent, especially in the early Abbasid era that we're speaking about here, because it had a theology, it had a worldview where learning from other civilizations and synthesizing them with Islam was a an acceptable endeavor and a promoted endeavor. Uh, that's why Muslims didn't shy away from they did it, you know, uh, learning from Greek philosophy. Uh, Muslims were the ones who actually inherited Aristotle, works of Aristotle, Plato, and other, other Greek philosophers from Eastern Christians, translated them into Arabic, which was the world's one of the world's greatest intellectual endeavors. Because uh, until that time, you know, cultures were not that much interactive with each other. So that created the Islamic civilization's openness. Because Muslims at the time, Al, Al Kindi put it. Uh, they, they didn't think we are Muslims, so we have all the wisdom we have, not just scientific, but also ethical. They thought a guy named Aristotle, the fact, no matter he might be an infidel from a religious point of view, might have ethical wisdom, might have wisdom about the natural order of the world. And this was, I emphasize, allowed by a theological outlook, which says that religion indicates truths that are also discoverable by other humans. But ultimately, what became more dominant in the Sunni tradition, as, uh, as symbolized by Hanbalism and Asherism, the two orthodoxies I'm criticizing in the book, was no, religion doesn't indicate truth. Religion constitutes them. So there is no wisdom beyond Islam. So why would you care about what the Greek philosophers are saying? Maybe you can take a few things, like logic, as Ghazali did that synthesis, but ultimately that stagnated the idea of you can learn anything from outside. Therefore, you cannot contribute to the outside as well. There can be only a rejection and us versus them approach, which was an approach within theology, within culture, and also within politics as well. And some people will say, no, no, this didn't happen. Well, I grew up with this in Turkey, in Turkey's Islamist circles. For decades, Turkey's Islamists told us that, which means disbelief. It, why? Because it comes from the infidels. Ultimately, some of them wanted to use democracy to come to power, but they only use it as an illiberal democracy, which is a you know interesting story in itself, which I will write hopefully one day. Uh, but there's a still resistance, and therefore, instead of discussing whether an idea is good or bad, some rigid circles in the Muslim world will just say, well, that idea is coming from the kuffar, the unbelievers. Precisely because of that, there is no basis for it. So I think Islamist, Islamic world owed its greatness to its open-mindedness and its cosmopolitanism, its universalism. And the, the 
decline of those ideas led to the decline in politics, decline in political wisdom, decline in ethical openness and, and other problems. And, and also it, it led to blind literalism of religious interpretation of the texts. Because if the religious text is the only source of ethical value that you have, you have to obey it without asking, well, maybe can we reinterpret this without having an access to another ethical ground? The door that opens onto uh, open uh, acceptance of, of wisdom from other sources than Muslim certainly has something to do with acknowledging a common uh, humanity, a common human, uh, human nature. And once that happens, as you say, uh, the possibility uh, grows of, of not just uh, accepting from the outside, but believing that you can contribute uh, to others who are not of your uh, faith through uh, something else that you and they um, have in, in common. I am a, an admirer of another uh, book of Mustafa's uh, called The Islamic Jesus. You know, it, it's it's clear uh, that uh, uh, Muhammad was well acquainted with Jews in his in his uh, area, in the Hijaz. But uh, how odd then, uh, if Jews were a stronger influence than Christians who were rare in the area, that uh, he speaks of Jesus as the Messiah. Well, there's a, there is one uh, answer to that, and that is that the Jews in his area also accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and there were Jews who accepted Jesus as the Messiah but did not accept him as God uh, incarnate, and so were persecuted by both Jews and Christians, and who may have fled for that reason uh, to the Hijaz, where... Uh, Muhammad became acquainted with them and clearly had a lively interaction uh, with them. Later in uh, the, the book we're now uh, looking at, Reopening Muslim Minds, we hear of how Ibn Rushd, uh, Averroes in Western intellectual history, was powerfully influential uh, upon Maimonides, who acknowledged his indebtedness to him, and also then on uh, medieval uh, scholastic philosophy practiced at the new universities that, that then came into existence in places like the University of Paris, where uh, sometimes Aristotle was named Aristotle, but more often he was simply called the philosopher and Ibn Rushd was the commentator. So in this way, from its period of, of, of greatest intellectual flowering, the Islamic uh, tradition was powerfully influential within both the Jewish community and the, and the Christian community. But then comes the tragedy that uh, there in uh, Andalusia, where he did his, his greatest work, it came about that uh, and Al-Mohad Caliph had all of his, his works burned. Um, I, I scarcely know what sort of question to ask about that, but I, I invite you to comment on that if, if you would like, Mustafa. Maybe we're nearing the point to where we can start taking questions from, from our audience. 
sure. I mean, just I'd like to add one more thing to what I just said about closing of minds in the medieval, late medieval Islamic civilization. I just want to warn that this can happen in any civilization anytime. If you think that we know everything and we don't need to learn any input from outside world, from other people, uh, I, it, any, any tradition can stagnate. Uh, the kind of political movements that are called nativism that I see in the West today, I think has the same bad potential to really close and, and, be, uh, and initiate a decline of the civilization on that side. So uh, it's not that there are specific problems to Islam. There are human traits that sometimes lead to progress and development and toleration. And there are human traits sometimes that go against them. And I see that those traits worked so badly in Islamic civilization at some point that I'm trying to criticize them. But this doesn't mean that uh, the same problems are not found in other uh, parts of the world today. They are. And I think we should see them all in one big whole. Regarding Ibn Rushd, uh, he was a great, I have a whole chapter on him, of course, The Last Man Standing. And I showed how Ibn Rushd, known in the West as Averroes, was one of the last voices in Islam who had the idea of revelation and reason as being two separate sources of wisdom. He had a sense of natural law, as, as uh, Christians call it, uh, and how he actually looked into some issues about jihad or women's rights in Islam, which can teach us something today. Uh, but, you know, when we get into that, we will finish this panel and have a few more. So maybe we should have some time for Q&A as well. Sure, I would like to I would like to take some some questions from the audience. And one question that came in uh, for you, Mustafa, is uh, you call for separation of religion and state in Muslim majority countries. <clears throat> but was that not already introduced to the Muslim world a century ago by secular states, as in your own country, Turkey, under the leadership of Ataturk? What happened there? Well, that's a very good question, uh, I should say. Uh, indeed, uh, the Muslim world has seen secular states, uh, especially in Turkey, my country, with Ataturk in 1920s. But what I'm speaking is a little bit different. Those secular experiments were political experiments. Ataturk introduced secularism, a very French-style secularism. It's called laïcité. Uh, it was a political imposition, and what he did was not to try to reconcile Islam with the idea of a secular state. He just brought it and he said, this is it. Uh, and that's why that secularism sometimes turned illiberal. I always say he brought secularism, but not necessarily liberalism. Uh, and when you do that, when you bring a secular political system on top of a religious tradition, which sometimes intimidates that religious tradition, what you have is that religion returns back with a vengeance, which is what is happening in Turkey, uh, I would say, which has happened in a much harsher way in Iran with the Iranian revolution. So what I'm trying to do is not speaking about a political design that we should have secular states. What I'm trying to do is to justify the idea of a secular and liberal secular state from within an Islamic point of view. You know, that's why I'm referring to John Locke, who argued for that separation. But I'm, I'm not arguing for some French revolutionaries who, I'm not arguing for the path of the some French revolutionaries who separated religion and state by crushing the Catholic Church. No, I'm working within the tradition and making that justification, which I think is the only way to go forward. Otherwise, we will see what we will see what we see in Turkey, an endless clash between uh, religious conservatives who want to claim the public space 
and the secularists who want to avert them by sometimes being more authoritarian and then just turning into a vicious cycle. Jason Hu asked the following question. What do you expect the response uh, will be to your book from the U.S. Muslim community, which has their own voices in the Congress, the Arab countries and their leaders, and the Muslim community living inside Jerusalem? This is obviously a question for Mustafa. Very specific definitions of Muslim communities. A very good question. Thank you very much uh, for our uh, viewer there. And what will be the response? Well, we will see. The book came out just a week ago. Uh, but so far, I've already received a lot of attention. I did a few events, interviews, and I think more are coming. One thing is that the people that show most attention, I think, to my book and will probably reprint it and translate it and publish it and, and, and be interested in it are the Muslims who already see the problem of religious illiberalism in their own countries. There are a lot of people in Pakistan who are disturbed with all the militancy or bigotry they see in Pakistan in the name of Islam. They are pious Muslims themselves. They're not against the religion, but they're against this coercive understanding of it. So they are typically very interested. Those people are interested in my book. Same thing for Malaysia, and I'm sure some people in the Arab world, and in, in, in Turkey too, I think. And I have a chapter, by the way, criticizing some discussions, uh, some attitudes in Turkey that people call immoral piety. And I'm sure trying to show how sometimes people can be pious, but not moral, and where does it come from? Uh, regarding American Muslims, uh, I should say that American Muslims, and um, Jack pointed to that too, American Muslims are probably the best integrated Muslim minority in, in outside of the uh, Muslim-majority countries. Uh, they are, as I can see, since I'm living in America, most American Muslims are proud to be Americans. They appreciate the religious freedom they find here. They appreciate the opportunities. Uh, will they be interested in my book? Some are, for sure, and you know that's why I, I see a lot of interest uh, since last week. And, and interest in my articles about these books. But there are two things there, I should say. I also see many American Muslims focus more on domestic issues of America, which is very normal. I mean, people look into the country uh, and they argue against nativism in America or white supremacism or other problems they see in American society, Islamophobia, which is very valid. I just would remind there that it is good that we defend equal justice under the law and civil liberties and, and human rights in the West when they are sometimes threatened by nativists or illiberal secularists as it is France. That's good, we should do that. But if you're defending these principles, we should also advocate them in Muslim majority countries, in Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan, in, in Iran, because the supremacism there is at a whole different level and much more grim. Uh, supremacism not against Islam, but in the, in the name of Islam. And I should say that I sometimes see a troubling attitude in some American Muslim uh, clerics, not, again, not defined, doesn't define the whole Muslim community, but I've seen that in a few, uh, in the words of a few people. And they, what they're saying is that, well, as a Muslim minority, we appreciate freedom in America. We appreciate equal justice under the law. 
these are good. We were happy to be here. So there's, they're not trying to bring creeping Sharia in America. So I should make that clear. That's an exaggeration and unfair accusation. But what they're saying is they say, but the standards back, back at home are different. These are the standards of Islam. We're not going to try to bring these standards, the liberal standards, back there. We'll just use them here, but we will justify Muslim supremacism. I mean, they don't put it that way, but that's what it is. We will not argue for equal rights there for minorities. We're not going to do that. There, I challenge that view. And I'm saying that if we Muslims are realizing that it's a good thing to have freedom for everybody, it's a good thing to have equal rights under the law uh, how can we deprive the minorities in the muslim world from these things how can we justify this in the name of islam and at the end of the day will people not ask why do you enjoy liberalism when it helps you but why do you oppress it or deny it when it actually works the other way around so i think there are interesting discussions going on in western muslims too but i'm very hopeful about the potential of a civic liberal understanding, non-coercive understanding of Islam growing in the West, especially in America. There's a lot of work, academic works about that, uh, which I'm trying to actually sometimes highlight. Uh, but the discussion will go on. Regarding Muslims in Jerusalem specifically, I can't say, but I think there the real issue today, I mean, speaking of, uh, let's say, Israel-Palestine, there the real issue probably there is now finding a political solution to the fact that millions of Palestinians are still stateless. And I hope one day a solution will be found there as a, a two-state solution or one-state solution or confederation, uh, because the issues in the Muslim world are not just religious, of course. There are a lot of political issues as well. And I think that's what I see uh, regarding the Muslims in Jerusalem, as they were mentioned. Dr. Miles. I have um, had the, an interesting experience with a a Pakistani uh, student of mine. She was born uh, in this country as an American citizen. Her, uh, her parents had a different set of opinion about where it was best for uh, Muslims to live who were serious uh, about their faith. Her mother uh, wanted uh, the, the husband and wife together to retire to Saudi Arabia. She actually thought Saudi Arabia was the true home of the faith, and there was where you could practice uh, Islam properly. Her husband had more mixed feelings, and my student uh, wanted to uh, remain in the United States, and she took the position that uh, she could practice Islam more authentically here uh, than uh, either in Pakistan uh, or, uh, or, or in Arabia. Uh, Mustafa, this reminds me of something you write about um, on page 84 of your book, which is the Islamicity Index, which is something maintained, I, I learned from you, by a group of American Muslims judging all the countries of the world by how Islamic they are. Could you tell us a little bit about that? It's a rather fascinating concept. Yes, there is an interesting work called the Islamicity Index, and a few American scholars, which I quote in the uh, in the book, uh, and it, it, they have a website one could check. They're ranking countries according to their Islamicity. However, by Islamicity, they're not meaning an ex 
an explicit uh, declaration of Islam, they're not meaning implementing the Sharia in a literal sense. They're focusing on the tradition in Islam that we call the makasit or the intentions of Sharia. That is an important vision in early Islam, which was not cultivated enough. In, in actually, let's say in the 12th, 13th centuries, uh, 12th, 13th century, there was works about it, especially by the great Imam Shatibi. He said all Sharia, that, there are a lot of injunctions there, but it's actually protecting the five values protection of uh, religion, life, uh, lineage, uh, property, and the intellect. In the 20th century, Ibn Ashur, an important scholar from Tunisia, added hurriya, or freedom, to this as well. So that's actually a very important vision in Islam. It's not about dry literalism, but looking at the, what actually religion wants, achieves as a, as a set of principles. Now, the scholars who have written this, who have created Islamicity Index, they're saying, well, let's look at the world from the sense of these principles. Which countries are best in protecting life, property, uh, intellect, and you know th these five, and freedom? Well, not a big surprise, the most Islamic countries in the world from this perspective are New Zealand, uh, Ireland, Norway, uh, other Denmark, other countries uh, which are generally in Western Europe, and no, no Muslim majority country actually makes it to top 40, which is something I highlight in the book. Uh, which and and I argue and I use that to argue that uh, we should understand Islam in a non-literalist literalist way and basing based on the intentions. And we look at if we look at the world like that, we we see a very different picture like this. Now, regarding the issue whether Islam should be an alternative to liberal democracy, uh, there are people who understand it that way. That, that's why they're called Islamists, right? They say, you know, Islamism is much better, and an Islamic state, a caliphate, will be much better than liberal democracies. When you ask them, so wh where do we see this? They will say, no, 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 none of them are true. Not Saudi Arabia, not Iran. So where is it? They say, this is not true Islam, this is not true Islam. Well, this is like true communism that you can never find in practice. Whenever you put in practice, it turns into a terrible tyranny. So I think we should give up this idea of there will be one ideal Islamic state based on the Sharia. We should look into the intentions of Sharia, which are actually in human nature. And that's why uh, you can find it today, those intentions better served in some Western liberal democracies, as uh, the Islamicity Index indicates. Thank you. I would like to take a, a, at least a, one more question from the audience. And we have a question about the debate that took place among Islamic scholars in the late first millennium, which was about uh, the question about whether philosophy is compatible with theology. Muslim scholars such as Al-Farabi said yes, but many others, especially uh, theologians, said no. The same debate uh, among Christian scholars led to a yes. And I'll add my own uh, question about that. You make a uh, reference to the Islamic Enlightenment, uh, Mustafa, as opposed to the Protestant uh, Reformation and, and also to a, a sort of a, a counter-enlightenment. Can you expand expound on on that please yeah definitely uh that is a actually a huge academic dispute that is going on in the past 150 years whether philosophy that really flourished in early islam and actually influenced the west did decline or not 
uh, early Orientalists said, yes, it declined. And it was because of Al-Ghazali, who was the great Sunni theologian, who condemned the philosophers as infidels and actually even judged that they could be killed. But at the same time, incorporated some of their thinking, including logic, into his works. So he actually condemned philosophy, but also naturalized it to, uh, to some extent. So the people who opposed this thesis pointed out that, no, no, Ghazali actually uh, allowed uh, theology and it continued within the Islamic tradition in the late Ashari scholarship. So there's some truth to the second argument too. But I agree with the third view that is now coming by expert scholars like Dimitri Gutas, who say that, yes, Al-Ghazali and the later theological tradition there of the Asharites allowed theology, sorry, philosophy to some extent but the very reason, but the very fact that they didn't allow it to be an independent discipline, an independent source of ethical wisdom outside of the Sharia, was a, 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 what led to stagnation. Uh, this also led to stagnation of sciences, as I show in my book, because El Ghazali was maybe more nuanced. But when you look a few centuries later, some of the Ashari thinkers, you see people like Imam Rabbani who condemn geometry as one of the useful, uh, useless, sorry, sciences of the philosophers. Was geometry useless? Well, the Ottomans figured that out soon because they realized that the Europeans have better armies and they need know-how to uh, cope with them. That's why they began to bring French or other European military experts to teach geometry to Ottomans. So I think there has been a stagnation, although it's more complicated than what the early Orientalists thought it was. And instead of being defensive about it, we should try to see the problem and to go forward. And it is important for any civilization to have multiple sources of wisdom, religion, theology, ethical philosophy, uh, secular thought, critical atheist thought that is critical of religion, the interaction between them without any cancel culture, let's say. Uh, is what makes civilizations and societies grow and prosper. Uh, and it's a secret in Islam, I think. It's a lesson from the history of Islam. It's a lesson we see in other parts of the world today. Well, we have to uh, wrap up, but I'd like to take one last question from uh, the audience. And if it's possible to give a very brief answer to a big question, actually. It's um, what you're saying is mostly applying, it appears, to Sunni Islam, but what about Shia uh, Islam and its tradition based on inheritance, imamat, and, and the rights to rule, like uh, some of its uh, some of its leaders? What do you think about that, and uh, how does that fit into your uh, thesis? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's a very good question. I touch my book is mainly about the Sunni tradition, which is the dominant tradition in Islam. But I touched upon what has happened in the Shiite world, uh, world as well. The Shiites were free from some of the troubling theological doctrines that I criticize in the Sunni tradition. So that has allowed, for example, philosophy to exist in the Shiite tradition more uh, visibly. And uh, also the Shiite jurisprudence have been relatively more flexible. So that could have allowed a path towards enlightenment in the Shiite tradition. However, there are other problems there, and that is the unquestioned authority of the Ayatollah. That's why I, I said in my book, while the Sunnis uh, gave all the moral authority to texts, 
the Shiites gave it to the Ayatollah, to the great leader. And that also prevented what could have been better. Uh, and no wonder, not a surprise, that that veneration of the Ayatollah uh, was used by Imam Khomeini to create a theocratic state, as we see in Iran. Iran is not the only expression of Shiite Islam. Iraqi Shiites do not agree with that theocratic model, but there's that potential. So I think that's why both in the Sunni and Shia world today, we need uh, reformist thinking. And there are great scholars who are already working on those issues. And I owe to them. I quote them in my book. I, I've read and learned from them. Uh, I'm just trying to highlight this, highlight the most burning issues and how we can rethink uh, them to move forward, both in the Sunni and Shiite traditions of Islam. Thank you, Mustafa. I'm afraid we've run out of time, and I want to thank uh, both Mustafa and Dr. Miles for joining us today. Mustafa, you're, you've written what I consider a very uh, important book, and I look forward to uh, seeing more about it in, in different parts of the world. Um, I apologize to all of the audience members who uh, who asked uh, questions, but we just didn't have time to get to all of them. This uh, program will be put up on our web uh, page at the Cato Institute uh, in archive form, so you can go back and see that. And we look forward to seeing all of you at future Cato Institute events. Thanks very much.